go across the sea for me to see to my love there she goes above the misty hills to the clouds that are above she rides high on disco lights but i fear that she smells my fear I once danced in a rainbow below the earth Only once, but nothing was more clear That I must continue to fight for the divine Right to die the tunnel It is far too bright Man, it seems out of sight Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is in the backyard, and this is Wine and Crime. <laughs> I wish, but no, it is not. <laughs> Rachel's been listening to a lot of Wine and Crime. I have, I have. Uh, this is Armchair Apocrypha, the uh, podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we've been gone for a little while, uh, obviously. Things mm-hmm. being what they are, the coronavirus, um, we've been doing things a little bit differently. Um, we've both gotten the opportunity to work from home. Rachel has to go into the office a couple days a week. Yeah. But, uh, I have been basically inside for about six weeks. God. <laughs> um, How does one stay sane? I don't know that I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, uh, I got a new computer mm-hmm. uh, when I got my... Um, Tax return. I got, bought a new computer, used uh, the money from the tax return to buy a new computer. Um, I downloaded Unity. And so one of my projects for being in quarantine is trying to learn how to make a visual novel. Oh, nice. And so that way I can make like short stories with graphics to go along with them. Um, We're good. <laughs> As Rachel just knocks over a bunch of glasses. I didn't know my feet could stretch that long. <laughs> um, but that's that's what I've been trying to learn how to do. That's awesome. It's been my... That's a good project. I'm working on yeah. a stupid puzzle, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know. Rachel bought a Coca-Cola puzzle, and it's a thousand pieces? Yeah, it's a thousand piece puzzle. It was a yeah. gift. I have these really cool puzzle pieces, and now's the time to do them. Yeah. So I'm working on the Coca-Cola one. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> it's surprising. Like, I can be focused on it at night, and then it's all of a sudden, like, two hours later. I'm like, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> but I'm enjoying it. It's a, it's a time sink. It is. We've also been playing, um, we just played The oh, Infectious yeah. Madness of Dr. Decker with Rachel and Mary. Yes. Um, what did you think about it? I enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought it was really fun. Um for me, for that, I don't know, the one that we're doing tonight, yeah. it seemed to drag on a bit. When? In, like, the, the third act? Yeah, 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 they're all, like, repeating, yeah. and I was like, okay, I get it, but it made it go longer, and you wanted to get more in-depth, yeah. but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's just, like, because you kept hearing the same things, right. but we got it right, so that's <laughs> all I care about. Uh, so the way that it, it works is uh, the infectious madness of Dr. Decker. It takes place about a month after a therapist named Dr. Decker yeah. was murdered um, in his office. And so you're the new therapist replacing him, but you're also trying to find out who murdered him. 
um, and it takes place over five days. But like the second and the third act are the longest acts. And uh, the first act, I want to say, took us like 30 minutes. And then acts two and three took us like three hours. It was like ridiculous. Um, so uh, I didn't realize this as we were playing it, but the um, the ending changes depending on how many insanity mm-hmm. points you have. And there's no like insanity point meter. You just get uh, steam achievements for having more insanity points. And I didn't even know what the, the achievements were for as I was getting them. I just figured it was for it moving through the, yeah. the story. But uh, we got a very low insanity point ending because we were just kind of going through it. Um, but if you like really spend time with it and you yeah. really deep dive into it, you get more insanity points and you get different endings. Like, and what was neat about it is like you could do it as one person or a yeah. group. But I really liked the group setting. That was yeah. kind of, that was fun. And that was kind of why I chose it for yeah uh, a social distancing uh, game is because you're just asking yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. trying to find information oh and i think my camera works on my laptop for <laughs> google hangouts nice i opened it the other day and the google hangout thing was on and my face is right there <laughs> i was like oh it works <laughs> we uh we tried to have a, a google hangout uh conference uh with our group mm-hmm. on tuesday yes yeah, tuesday um and so i opened up google hangouts and of course i just got a new computer so my camera and everything is all set up and mary was on her iphone and so she was just kind of talking with us on her iphone and Rachel is like, my my uh, camera is updating. It'll be done in about fifteen minutes. And about thirty minutes later, I was like, Hey, is That's your uh, is your computer <laughs> okay? It wasn't done until after our whole conversation, like wow. an hour later. Dang. Then I saw it turn on. I'm like, Oh, that's pointless. I'll check it later. Yeah, oh, I totally forgot. Uh, but anyways, so those have been our adventures in um, social distancing. Yeah. That's all I got. And that's all you got. Do you want to get into today's episode? Yeah, I'm very intrigued. Okay. Also, I'm nervous now that I can't hear him bark anymore. <laughs> Ugh. Hopefully he doesn't see a cat. That's what it means. Hopefully he's just like laid down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of Alexandra David Neal? Alexandra David? Alexandra David Neal. No. All right. She was a Belgian-French explorer, spiritualist, Buddhist, anarchist, and writer. She sounds right up your alley. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't she, though? Uh, She's best known for her 1924 visit to Lhasa, Tibet, which was uh, forbidden to foreigners at the time. Uh, She wrote over 30 books about Eastern religion, philosophy, and her travels, including Magic and Mystery in Tibet, which was published in 1929. Her teachings influenced the beat writers Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, which is not how I found out about her. Uh, they also, uh, she also popularized the Eastern philosophy of Alan Watts and Ram Dass and the esotericist Benjamin Cream. Uh, so Alexandra was born in St. Monde, Val de Marne. Uh, she was the only daughter of her father, Louis David, a Huguenot Freemason, a teacher uh, who was a Republican activist during the Revolution of 1848, and a friend of geographer slash anarchist, Alice Recluse. So much going on there. That's a lot. Uh, she had a Belgian Roman Catholic mother. Louis and Alexandrine had met in Belgium, where the school teacher and publisher of a Republican journal was exiled when Louis Napoleon Bonaparte became emperor. 
between the penniless husband and the wife who would not come into her inheritance until her father would die, the reasons for disagreement between them grew with the birth of Alexandra. In 1871, appalled by the execution of the last communards in, uh, in front of the communards wall at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, Louis David took his daughter of two years, uh, Eugenie, whose future name would be Alexandra, to see and um, learn about the communards of Paris. Before the age of, eight, of 15, uh, Alexandra had been exercising a good number of extravagant austerities. Fasting, corporal torments, recipes drawn from biographies of ascetic saints found in the library of one of her female relatives, uh, to which she refers to the Sioux de Nou Dorge. I have no idea what that <laughs> translates to. Uh, at age 15, spending her holidays with her parents in Austin, she ran for and reached the port of Lisingen in the Netherlands to try and embark for England. Uh, lack of money forced her to give up. At age 18, David Neal had uh, already visited England, Switzerland, and Spain on her own, and she was studying in Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society. Uh, she joined various, various secret societies. Uh, she would reach the 30th degree in the mixed Scottish rite of Freemasonry, um, while feminist and anarchist groups greeted her with enthusiasm. Throughout her childhood and adolescence, she was associated with the French geographer and anarchist Alice Recluse, I mentioned earlier, uh, which led her to become interested in the anarchistic ideas of time and in feminism, uh, which inspired her to publish Pour la Vie, or For Life, in 1898. In 1899, she composed an anarchist treatise with a preface by, with a preface by Alessi Recluse. Publishers did not dare publish the book, uh, but her friend John Hostant printed copies himself and it was eventually translated into five languages. According to historian uh, Raymond Bradour, she converted to Buddhism in 1889, which she noted in her diary that was published under the title The Lamp da Sagas, or The Lamp of Wisdom, in 1986. She was 20, 21 years old at the time. That same year, uh, to refine her English, uh, which was an indispensable language for her career, she went to London, where she frequented the library of the British Museum and met several members of the Theosophical Society. The following year, back in Paris, she introduced herself to Sanskrit and Tibetan and followed different instructions at the Collège de France and at the École Pratique des Hautes Études, Practical School of Advanced Studies, without ever passing an exam there. According to Jean Chalon, her vocation to be an Orientalist and Buddhist originated at the Guimet Museum. Um, between 1895 and 1904, at the suggestion of her father, David Neal attended the Conservatoire Royal de Bruxelles, or the Royal Conservatory of Brussels, where she studied piano and singing. Cool. To help her parents who were experiencing setbacks, David Neal, who had obtained a first prize in singing, took the position of first singer at the Hanoi Opera House in Indochina. Uh... She interpreted the role of the Violetta, de, uh, the Violetta in La Traviata by Verdi, and then she sang Las Noches de Jeanette in Faust, and in Marielle, uh, Lacme, Carmen, and Thais. She maintained a pin friendship with Frederick Mistral and Jules Massenet at that time. 
From 1897 to 1900, she was living together with the pianist John Histont in Paris. Uh, and she wrote Lydia with them, a lyric tragedy in one act, for which Festant composed the music and David Neal the libretto. She left to sing at the Opera House of Athens from November 1899 to January 1900. Then in July of 1900, she went to the Opera House of Tunis. Soon after her arrival in the city, she met a distant cousin, Philip Neal, uh, chief engineer of the Tunisian railways and, of, uh, and her future husband. During a stay of Jean Hestant in Tunis in the summer of 1902, she gave up her singing career and assumed artistic direction of the Casino of Tunis for a few months while continuing her writing work and translation. Uh, on August 4th, 1904, at age 36, she married Philip Neal de Saint-Savat, whose lover she had been since September 1900. Their life together was sometimes turbulent, but characterized by mutual respect. It was interrupted by her departure alone uh, for her third trip to India on August 9th, 1911. Uh, she said that she did not want children, aware that motherhood was incompatible with her need for independence and her inclination to education. She promised to return to Philippe in 19 months, but it was 14 years later in May 1925 when they met again. Say that again. She promised to return to Philippe in 19 months, but it was 14 years later oh in May God. 1925 when they met again. I'd be pissed. <laughs> I'll be back next year. Don't worry about it. 14 Ooh, years later. later? My God. Uh, David Neal had come back with her exploration partner, the young Lama Apur Yongden, uh, whom she would make her adopted son in 1929. Uh, however, the spouses began an extensive correspondence after their separation, which only ended with the death of Philippe Neal in February 1941. Huh. From these exchanges, many letters by David Neal remain, and some letters written by her husband, many having been burnt or lost on the occasion of David Neal's tribulations during the Chinese Civil War in the middle of the 1940s. Legend has it that her husband was also her patron. The truth is probably quite different. She had, at her marriage, a personal fortune, and in 1911, three departments helped her to finance an educational trip through the embassies. Um, so it was probably a mixture of her personal fortune, her education departments, and her husband's fortune. Yeah. Um, so between 1911 and 1925, she did an Indo-Tibetan Indo tour. Uh, she traveled for, to India for the second time to study Buddhism in 1912. Uh, she arrived at the Royal Monastery in Sikkim, where she befriended Maharaj Kumar, the crown prince, um, and the eldest son of the sovereign, Shogyal. Uh, she traveled to the uh, many Buddhist minister monasteries to improve her knowledge of Buddhism. In 1914, she met young Apur Yongden in one of those monasteries at 15 years old. Uh, both, desire, both decided to retire in a hermitage, hermitage cavern at more than 4,000 meters above sea level in northern Sikkim. That's really high above sea level. That's pretty high up. 13,000 feet. Damn. Yeah. Sid Kong, uh, then the spiritual leader of Sikkim, was sent to the meeting with Alexandra David Neal by his father, the Maharaja of Sikkim, having been told about her arrival in April 1912 by the British resident at Gangtuk. On the occasion of the first encounter, their mutual understanding was immediate. 
Sid Kong, eager for reformation, was listening to Alexander David Neal's advice, and before returning to his occupations, he left behind Thalama Kazi Dawa Semdup as her guide, interpreter, and professor of Tibetan. After that, Sid Kong confided in Alexander David Neal that his father wished him uh, to renounce the throne in favor of his half-brother. Lama Kazi Dawa Samdup accompanied Alexander David Neal to Kalimpong, where she met with the 13th Dalai Lama in exile. Mm. She received an audience on the April 15th, 1912, and met Ikai Kawaguchi in his waiting room, uh, who she, whom she would meet again later in Japan. The Dalai Lama welcomed her, accompanied by the inevitable interpreter, and he strongly advised her to learn Tibetan, an advice that she followed. She recovered, uh, she received his blessing, um, and then engaged in dialogue, asking her how she had become a Buddhist. David Neal amused him by claiming to be the only Buddhist in Paris, and surprised him by telling him that the Gaichur Rolpa, a sacred Tibetan book, had been translated by Philip Edward Foucault, a professor at the College de France. She asked for many additional explanations that the Dalai Lama tried to uh, provide, promising to answer all her questions in writing. In late May, she went to Lachen, where she met Lachen Gamchen Rinpoche, the superior of the town's monastery, with an improvised interpreter in M-O-N, or E-H-O-N, a reverend who replaced the absent Kazi Dawi Samdab. In Lachen, she lived for several years close to one of the greatest Gamchens of whom she had the privilege to be taught, and above all, she was very close to the Tibetan border, which she crossed twice against all odds. In her cave, she practiced Tibetan yoga. Uh, she was sometimes in Sam, that is, a re retreat for several days without seeing anyone, and she learned the technique of Tumo, which mobilized her internal energy to produce heat. As a result of this apprenticeship, her master, Gumption of Lachen, gave her a religious name of Yesha Toma, the Lamp of Sages, which proved valuable to her because she was then known by Buddhist authorities everywhere she went in Asia. When she was in company of Lachen Gumption Rin Rinpoche, Alexandra David Neal encountered Sin Kong again on an inspection tour in Lachen in May of 1912. Uh, these three personalities of Buddhism, thus reunited, reflected on and work together to reform and expand Buddhism, as the Gamchen would declare. For David Neal, Sid Kong organized a one-week expedition into the high areas of Sikkim at 5,000 meters of altitude, which started on uh, July 1st. There was correspondence between Sid Kong and Alexander David O'Neill uh, in a letter by Sid Kong written at Gongtuk in uh, October of 1912. He thanked her for a meditation method which she had sent to him. On October 9th, he accompanied her to Darjeeling, where they visited a monastery together while she prepared to return to Calcutta. In another letter, Sid Kong informed David Neal that, in March of 1913, he was able to enter Freemasonry at Calcutta, where he had been admitted as a member, provided with a letter of introduction by the governor of Bengal, a further link between them. He told her of his pleasure of having been allowed to become a member of the society. When his father was about to die, Sid Kong called Alexander David Neal for help and asked her to advise, uh, advise him in bringing about the reform of Buddhism that he wished to implement at Sikkim once he came to power. Returning to Gantuk via Darjeeling and Siliguri, David Neal was received like an official figure with a guard of honor. 
1914, he gave her as a gift for the year a female llama, which uh, a female llama dress, which was sanctified according to Buddhist rites. David Neal had her picture taken with a yellow hat completing this ensemble. I'm going to show you the picture of her. I'm ready. It's cool. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> uh, well, she was at the monastery of Fodong, the abbot of which was uh, Sitkong. David Neal declared she heard a voice announcing to her that reforms would fail. In 1914, leaving the cavern of Sikkim, where she had gone to meet her gumption, David Neal was received by the Lachin Monastery, um, and one month later she learned about her uh, her patron, Sitkong's uh, sudden death, news that affected her and made her think of poisoning. 1916, without asking permission, Alexander David Neal left for Tibet, accompanied by Ongden and a monk. She planned to visit two great religious centers close to her Sikkim retreats, the Monastery of Chorden Niyama and the Tassel Honpo Monastery close to Shigatsa, one of the biggest cities in southern Tibet. At the monastery of Tashul Honpo, where she arrived on 16 July, she was allowed to consult the Buddhist scriptures and visit various temples. On the 19th, she met with the Panchen Lama, by whom she received the blessing and a charming welcome. Uh, he introduced her to his entourage as person of rank, to her, his professors, and to his mother, with whom David Neal tied bonds of friendship, and who suggested to her to reside in a convent. The Panchen Lama bade and proposed her to stay at the Shigatsa as his guest, uh, which she declined, leaving the town on July 26. Um, she also received various honorary titles from the Lama um, and became a doctor in Tibetan Buddhism. Cool. Uh, yeah. It kind of sometimes seems like she just falls into these various honors yeah. and titles. Like she shows up and she's like, hey, Here nice to meet you. It's really, I really want to be your friend. And then people <laughs> are just like, oh, well, you're a doctor now. I'll give you this work because you want to be my friend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, upon her return to Sikkim, the colonial British authorities pushed by min uh, missionaries, exasperated by the welcome afforded David Neal and the Panchen Lama, and annoyed by her having ignored their ban of entering Tibet, thrust a notification of expulsion upon her. Uh, as it was impossible to return to Europe during World War I, Alexander David Neal and Yongden left Sikkim for India and then to Japan. There she met the philosopher Ikai Kawaguchi, who had managed to stay for 18 months in Lhasa as a Chinese monk in disguise a few years earlier. David Neal and Yongden subsequently left for Korea and then Beijing, um, and from there they chose to cross China from east to west, accompanied by a colorful Tibetan Lama. Their journey took several years through the Gobi, Mongolia, um, before a break of three years in Kambam Monastery in Tibet, where David Neal, helped by Yongden, translated the famous Prajna Paramita. So we're up to 1924 now. Uh, she disguised herself as a beggar and a monk, and was carrying a backpack as discreet as possible to evade the British authorities. Um, Alexandra David Neal and Yongden then left for the Forbidden City. In order as not to portray her status as a foreigner, David Neal did not dare to take camera or survey equipment. She did, however, under her rags, hide a compass, a pistol, and a purse of money for a possible ransom. Uh, they reached Lhasa in 1924, merged with a crowd of pilgrims coming to celebrate the Monlam Prayer Festival. They stayed in Lhasa for two months, visiting the Holy City and uh, large surrounding monasteries. 
Despite her face smeared with soot, her yak wool mats, and her traditional uh, fur hat, she was finally unmasked due to too much cleanliness. She went to wash herself every morning at the river, announced by Sarong Shop, the governor of Lhasa. By the time the latter took action, David Neil and Yongjin had already left Lhasa for Gyantse. They were only told about the story later by letters of by letters from Ludlow and David MacDonald, the British sales representative in Gyantse. In May 1924, the explorer, exhausted without money and in rags, was, accompan- uh, was accommodated together with her companion at the MacDonald home for, the, uh, for a fortnight. She managed to reach northern India through Sikkim partly thanks to 500 rupees she borrowed from MacDonald and to the necessary papers that he and his son-in-law, Captain Perry, obtained for her. In Calcutta, dressed in a new Tibetan outfit MacDonald had bought for her, she got herself photographed in a studio. After her return, starting up uh, at her arrival at Haver on May 10th, 1925, she was able to assess the remarkable fame of her audacity, um, which her audacity had earned her. She hit the headlines of the newspapers and her portrait spread in the magazines. The account of her adventures in Tibet and in China uh, would become the subject of a book, My Journey to Lhasa, which was published in Paris, London, and New York in 1927, but was met with disbelief of critics who had a hard time accepting the stories about such practices as le- levitation and tumo, huh. the increase of body temperature to withstand cold. In 1972, Jean Dennis, who was at the time a working librarian for David Neal, would publish Alexander David Neal au Tibet, un superchari de voli, approximately, Alexander David Neal in Tibet, Trickery Uncovered. Uh, the book caused rather little sensation by claiming to demonstrate that David Neal had not entered Lhasa. Jean Dennis maintained that the photograph of David Neal and Epper sitting in the area before the Patala taken by Tibetan friends was instead a montage. It had been doctored. She pretended that David Neal's parents were modest Jewish uh, storekeepers who spoke Yiddish at home. She went as far as to accuse David Neal of having invented the accounts of her voyages and her studies. Um, I'm going to skip a few years. Um, at 78, Alexandra David Neal returned to France to arrange her estate of her husband. Then she started writing for her home in Digna. Between 1947 and 1950, Alexandra David Neal came across Paul Adam, uh, venerable R. Arya Deva, who she commended because he took her place on short notice at a conference held by the Theosophical Society in Paris. In 1952, she published the text Tibetans in in edits, unpublished Tibetan writings, anthology of Tibetan literature, including, among, among other things, the erotic poems attributed to the sixth Dalai Lama. In 1953, a work of uh, actuality followed. The Face a la China Nouvelle, in which she gave a certain and documented opinion on the tenth situation in the region once visited her, by her. Um, she lost her adopted son Yongden in October of 1955. Uh, according to Jacques Brasse, Yongden, seized by a strong fever and sickness, which David Neal attributed to simple indigestion, fell into a coma during the night and died carried off by kidney failure, according to the doctor's diagnosis. Um, David Neal found herself alone, just having turned 87. 
Uh, Yongju's ashes were kept safe in the Tibetan oratory of Samtenzong, awaiting to be thrown into the Ganges, together with those of David Neal after her death. With age, David Neal suffered more and more from articular, articular rheumatism that forced her to walk with crutches. I walk on my arms, she used to say. Her work rhythm slowed down. Um, she stopped publishing things between 1955 and 1956, and in 1957, only a third edition of her Initiation Islamic. In 1957, she left Samson Zong in order to live at Monaco with a friend who had always been typing her man uh, manuscripts, then decided to live alone in a hotel, going from one establishment to the next, till June 1959, when she was introduced to a young woman, Marie-Madeleine Perinet, who she took as her personal secretary. She would stay with the old lady until the end, watching over her like a daughter over her mother, and sometimes like a mother over her unbearable child. Um, Alexander David Neal nicknamed her Turtle, for some reason. <laughs> At a hundred uh, years and a half, she applied for her renewal of her passport uh, to protect the Bassus Alps in France. Uh, Alexandra and David Neal died on September 8th, 1969, at 101 years old. Damn. In 1973, her ashes were brought to Versailles by Marie-Madeleine Perinette to be disposed, uh, dispersed with those of her adopted son into the Ganges River. And that was the end of Alexandra David Neal. 101. 101. Damn. Apparently some of that Tibetan uh, Buddhist teachings work for her. Apparently. Well, I do have a lady around the same time period, okay. so. But it's an American. Well, she was 101, so she was like every time period. She was every yeah. time period. This lady was born in 1861. Okay. And then most of this takes place in the 1900s, 1920s. Okay. So Jane Adams is her name. Okay. With two Ds. She was born in Cedarville, Illinois in 1861. Mm. Jane Adams was the youngest of eight children born into a prosperous Northern Illinois family. Um, by the time Adams was eight... Four of her siblings had died, three in infancy and one at the age of 16. In 1863, when she was two years old, her mother, Sarah Adams, died while pregnant with her ninth child. Thereafter, Sarah, or Sarah Jane was cared for mostly by her older sisters. When she was uh, four, she contracted tuberculosis of the spine, okay. known as Pott's disease, which caused a curvature in her spine and a lifelong and lifelong health problems. Right. This made it complicated as a child to function with the other children, considering she had a limp and could not run as well. As a child, she thought she was ugly, and later remembered wanting to not embarrass her father when she when he dressed in his Sunday best by walking down the street with him. Right. Um, Jane adored her father. He was a founding member of the Illinois Republican Party, served as an Illinois state senator, and supported his friend Abraham Lincoln uh, for the presidency. Right. He kept a letter from Lincoln on his desk, and Jane loved to look at it as a child. Nice. Her father required her to attend at the nearby Rockford Female Seminary, mm -hmm. now Rockford University, because he wanted her to stay close to home. After graduating in 1881 with a certificate and membership, she hoped to attend Smith to earn a proper BA. Okay. 
That summer, her father died unexpectedly from a sudden case of appendicitis. Ugh. But, like I said, they're from a prosperous family, so each <laughs> child inherited roughly $50,000, the equivalent to $1.3 million four years ago. That, that's a pretty good uh, That's a pretty good, pretty inheritance. good inheritance. Yeah. Jane and her sister Alice completed went to medical school and completed their first year at the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, but Jane's health problems, a spinal operation, and a nervous breakdown prevented her from completing the degree. That'll do I it. I get it, yeah. Yeah. She was filled with sadness at her failure. I just thought that was so sad whoever wrote that sentence down. Oh, she was filled, of course she was filled with sadness at her failure. Anyways, the following fall, her brother-in-law, Harry, performed surgery on her back to straighten it. He then advised that she not pursue studies, but instead travel. And since she's kind of rich, yeah. she can. Yeah. So in August of 1883, she set off for a two-year tour of Europe with her stepmother, her father had remarried, mm -hmm. traveling some of the time with friends and family who joined them. Jane decided that she did not have to become a doctor to be able to help the poor, because that's always what she wanted to do. Right. So in the summer of 1887, Adams read in a magazine about the new idea of starting a settlement house. Mm -hmm. She decided to visit the world's first uh, Toynbee Hall in London. Right. She and several friends, including a friend from college, Ellen Gates Starr, traveled, in, traveled to Europe in December... And stay there through the summer. Um, after watching a bullfight in Madrid, fascinated by what she saw as an exotic tradition, Jane condemned this fascination and her inability to feel outraged at the suffering of horses and bulls. Okay. Um, at first, she told no one about her dream to start a somewhat house, but she felt increasingly guilty for not acting on her dream. Mm -hmm. Believing that sharing this might help her act on it, she told her friend Ellen... Um, and her friend loved the idea and agreed to help her in starting the settlement house. Okay. So, in 1889, Jane and her college friend, Ellen, co-founded Hull House, a settlement house in Chicago. Mm -hmm. The rundown mansion had been built by Charles Hull in 1856 and needed repairs and upgrading. Right. Jane at first paid for all the capital expenses, because she has money, yeah. repairing the roof, the porch, repainting the rooms, buying furniture, and most of the operating costs. However, gifts from individuals supported the house Gifts from individuals supported the house beginning in its first year, and Jane was able to reduce the proportion of her contributions, although the annual budget grew rapidly. Right. A number of wealthy women became important long-term donors to the house, including Helvin Culver, who managed her first cousin Charles Hall's estate, i.e. the mansion, yeah. and who eventually allowed the contributors to use the house rent-free. So... Jane and Ellen were the first two occupants of the house, which would later become the residence of about 25 women. Mm. At its height, Hull House was visited each week by some 2,000 people. Right. The Hull House was a center for research, empirical analysis, study, and debate, as well as pragmatic center for living in and establishing good relations with the neighborhood. Yeah. Among the aims of the Hull House is to give privileged, educated young people contact with real life of the majority of the population. Residents of Hull House conducted investigations on housing, midwifery, fatigue, tuberculosis, typhoid, garbage collection, cocaine, and truancy. The core Hull House residents were well-educated women bound together by their commitment to labor unions, the National Consumers League, and the suffrage movement. 
Dr. Harriet Rice joined Whole House to provide medical treatment for four families. Mm-hmm. It facilities its facilities included a night school for adults, clubs for older children, a public kitchen, an art gallery, a gym, a girls' club, a bathhouse, a book bindery, a music school, a drama group, and theater apartments, a library, meeting rooms for discussion clubs, and an employment bureau, and a lunchroom. A lot of really cool shit. Yeah. Hull House became America's best-known settlement house. Jane used it to just to generate system-directed change on the principle that to keep families safe, community and societal conditions has to be had to be improved. the The neighborhood was controlled by local political bosses. Mm-hmm. No shit. Um, so Ellen and Jane developed the three ethical principles for societal social settlements: to teach by example, to practice cooperation, and to practice social democracy. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yes. <laughs> uh, starting with efforts to improve the immediate neighborhood, the whole house group became involved in city and statewide campaigns for better housing, improvements in public welfare, stricter child labor laws, and protection of working women. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only imagine the child labor laws were like almost non-existent. Right, even right, then. yeah. Jane brought in prominent visitors from around the world and had close links with leading Chicago intellectuals and philanthropists. In 1912, she helped start the new Progressive Party and supported the presidential campaign of Teddy Roosevelt. Along with her colleagues from the Old House, in 1901, Jane founded what would become the Juvenile Protection Association. I thought that was pretty badass. JPA provided the first probation officers for the first juvenile court in the United States until this became a government function. From 1907 until the 1940s, JPA engaged in many studies examining such subjects as racism, child labor and exploitation, drug abuse, and prostitution in Chicago, and their effects on child development. Mm. Through the years, their mission has now become to improve the social and emotional well-being and functioning of vulnerable children so they can reach their fullest potential at home and school and in their communities. Right. Um, so, she was pretty well known, so she just lectures not just like at universities in the the states but she went and did like talks all over the world yeah um here we go they only dive into a little bit about her personal life but it does say that generally jane was close to wide set of other women and was very good at eliciting their involvement from different classes in the house nevertheless throughout her life jane did have significant romantic relationships with a few of these women Mm -hmm. um including someone named Mary Smith and her college friend, Ellen. Yeah. Her relationships offered her the time and energy to pursue her social work while being supported emotionally and romantically. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, it kind of seems like that might be a uh, impropriety. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I'm uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I'll allow it. Um, her first romantic partner, Ellen, with whom she founded Hull House and whom she met when they were both students at Rockford uh, Seminary in 1889, both had visited the Tonaby Hall together in London and started right. the Summit House purchasing a house and purchasing the house in Chicago. Okay. Her second romantic partner was Mary Smith, who, finan- who was financially wealthy and supported Jane's work at Hull House and with whom she shared a house. Historian Lillian Fatterman wrote that Jane was in love and she addressed Mary as my ever dear, darling, and dearest one. Which, oh, can you imagine reading <laughs> old letters from the 1900s? <laughs> um, and 
and concluded that they shared the intimacy of a married couple. They remained together until 1934 when Mary died of pneumonia after 40 years together. I know. 40 years. 40 fucking years together. Um, mm -hmm. In January, so that's a little bit of, that's really all they get into a personal life because that's probably about all there is. She didn't have children or anything. Right. So... In January of 1915, she became involved in the Women's Peace Party and was elected a national chairman. Okay. She was invited by European women peace activists to preside over the International Congress of Women in The Hague of April 28th through the 30th in 1915 and was chosen to head the commission to find an end to the war. Mm. This included meeting 10 leaders in neutral countries as well as those at war to discuss mediation. This was the first significant international effort against the war. Right. Um, so Jane Adams philosophy of peace is typically what is noted as positive peace. Mm-hmm. Um, they, ha- uh, these people have summarized her ideas of peace using the terms peace weaving. They use weaving as a metaphor because it denotes connection. Fibers come together to form a cloth, which is both flexible and strong. Further weaving is an activity in which men and women have historically engaged. Right. Jane's peace weaving is a process which builds the fabric of peace of emph- emphasizing relationships. Uh, peace weaving builds these relationships by working on practical problems, engaging people widely with sympathetic understanding while recognizing that progress is measured by the welfare of the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. In the 21st century, Jane is regarded as an early American Democrat socialist. Um, Oh, shoot. I forgot how quickly this ended. (laughs) So it really just talked about how she, like, started all, like, this whole house and, like, what it helped for the city of Chicago and things like that. But then it doesn't really go much into her older life. I think she just kind of, like became a part of the house and did her things because all it really says is like, um, well, and she died in 1935 at the age of 74, but a couple years ago she had had a bad stroke and she wasn't really the same. Right. So I'm pretty sure that she stayed and I didn't have enough time. By the way, we do have internet again. I didn't have enough time to look up to see like what happened to the whole house, what it is right now. Um, Jane M's whole house. It's a museum now. Yeah. And it's called the Jane Addams Whole House Museum. Yeah. So I should have looked further into <laughs> what happened to it. Um, it looks like... Oh, wait. The Whole House Associated continued to provide social services in multiple locations throughout Chicago, but ceased operations in January of 2012. 2012? Yeah. It's pretty recent. Yeah, well, I think it, like, expanded, and, like, yeah. what it usually was wasn't that, but what it, what it did represent did have operations, and then it kind of ceased in 2012. It says the whole mansion and related dining hall remained open as a museum. Right. And that is Jane Addams. Nice. And I thought that was kind of a cool story. I like that a lot. Yeah, I did, too. <laughs> <laughs> we could say this is our settlement house. <laughs> We need more room for so yeah, well, yeah, 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 we do. Um, yeah, that was really good. Um, Rachel has. Uh, what are you baking? I'm gonna make a carrot cake loaf. Rachel's got a <laughs> carrot cake loaf to uh, try to and bake. <laughs> try and bake. Um, so we're gonna get out of here. Um, we uh, we have a new website. It's not new anymore. It's 
three months old, four months old. Uh, but we have a new-ish <laughs> website, uh, absentactivismarts.com. Uh, it's got profiles for all of us. Uh, we've got pages for all of our individual artwork, um, my writing, Mary's writing, uh, Kitty's artwork. Uh, <coughs> God bless. I feel like coming. <laughs> Thank you. Joshua Paul Brooks's music and Florin Renee Keitler's acting. Uh, we also have a page specifically for uh, Armchair Apocrypha. So if you've ever wanted to just sit down and binge to our uh, relaxing voices um, mm -hmm. for about three days, <laughs> uh, you can do that on our website at absentactivismarts.com. Uh, we also have links to our Patreon and LiberaPay if you feel like giving us money for any reason. Um, <laughs> I think that's it. Sounds good to me. Good. Uh, we're going to get out of here. We will see you guys soon. Uh, we love you and have a great week. Under the tongues of men lie the simple truths of terror. But my love's eyes make bright the night skies and clears the stormy weather. In the rain, I'm like a wet dog in my hunger. It intensifies. But the thunder clears all my mind sounds and the fear it is justified. The lightning scorches the plains. The fantasies go up in flame. The distinguished author goes insane, but my love, she remains just the same.